Hello, and welcome to episode number 15 of Investing from the Beach. I'm Chris Hansen, your host, and I've got my co-host with me today. Hello, everyone. Chris Lamb. Today is, we had an interesting week this past, well, let's back up before we even talk about that. If you're new to the show, a quick background on the two of us. And if you want a lot more detail, go listen to an earlier episode where we went into a lot more excruciating detail. But a quick highlight on this, we both worked for IBM. Um, the other Chris is about 20 years younger than I am. And while we were there, while I was there, I started learning the stock market, got to the point where I didn't need the job anymore and was able to walk away, hit time freedom. And that was back in 2002. And Chris did the same thing. He started IBM t- about 20 years after I did and only had to work there about 10 years. And so he left so, in. So just when Chris was walking away, you know, I'm walking in. You're walking in. <laughs> and you worked there, what, about 10 years? About 10 years, correct. And so we uh, we both did it via the stock market. We both looked at real estate and thought, yeah, there's a whole bunch of things about it that we weren't intrigued with and didn't like. But both did it via the stock market and developed a great friendship as a result of that. And over the years, we've had countless discussions about what it takes and what it took to get to time freedom. And what we both came to the realization of, it's everybody focuses on the how to do. You know, people come up to us individually and, and together and say, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What's the one thing I got to do? And they're all focused on the how to do aspect. And that's a failure. That's a mistake. It really, 5% of this is how to do. 95% of this is how to think. So if you're focused on the mechanics, the cookbook, the rules and all that, you're really missing the point. You've got to get your mindset correct. And that's the purpose of this podcast. We talk about the how to think aspects as it relates to investing and trading, whether that be, and it applies whether it's in the stock market, real estate, or whether you're opening up an Amazon affiliate business, you want to sell somebody else's stuff or their products or their services. If you're starting a small business, if you're entrepreneurial and self-employed, it's the same thing. 95% of it is how to think. And that's what we cover in the podcast. And that mindset uh, is, is it's really pervasive through everything that you're doing, not just investing. So, you know, uh, if take, try to apply it to whatever that you're trying to accomplish. It applies in life. It's just yeah. about everything you do in life with uh, something you're trying to accomplish. That 95-5 ratio will serve you well. Yeah, don't just apply it to money. So since the last episode, in fact, interesting little note of trivia for those of you who have been listening to the show a little bit. The last episode we did was we talked, we entitled it Covered Calls. And surprising to me, that one has received by far the largest number of views in a week. In fact, it's had the largest number of views or listens, downloads, whatever they call it, of all of our shows. And so it was interesting to me to think, all right, if you put a keyword in there, this has covered calls. We get the uh, get the stock market community. I'm, I'm assuming what it is, but it generated a lot of questions uh, via email and via phone calls. And one that came up, and it comes up regularly when you listen to people being interviewed on various podcasts. The question gets asked regularly: What is the one thing that you need to succeed? Chris, you get this quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, you hear it in the uh, in sports as well, right? When they're asking a coach, right? And I always see the coach kind of like just cringe a little bit or shakes his head or like, how do I answer that? Because there is not just one thing. There is definitely not (laughs) just one thing. I guess, I mean, if you lumped it, one thing you could say it's how to think, right? That's kind of a catch-all. 
but there's not just one element that makes the difference. There's a ton of moving parts. Now let's 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 take a look and take a step back and realize or analyze why people ask that, because I think the mind really says, uh, or most people think that there's some type of secret or magic to doing something, or say, hey, it seems like it's too much. What if I just you know do something simple? What can I just focus on? Right? The mind tends to be, hey, give me something simple to do. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what's that one thing? It's like there's much more than one thing. Well, not There's sure. many one things. There is one thing, Chris. It's work. It encompasses many, many things. A little bit of it is the how to do, as we said. A big chunk is the how to think. But taking a step back from it, that one thing mentality, or you know, if you're listening to this looking for the one little nugget that you need to push you over the bar, or push you to the next level. If you think back one of our earlier episodes where we talked about the operating system, that one thing that's really, you're thinking like it's an app. There's one little task or one little, you know, uh, dot an I across a T type thing that if you can do that, you'll get there. And you don't need that. What you need using that app or that operating system approach, you need the operating system mentality. You've got to have the foundational elements in place and then all the other pieces fall in. But if you're missing the base core operating system in your brain, you're going to struggle. And you're going to, you know, you're going to try and chase every single attractive lure, almost like a, a fish in the pond. The fisherman drops an attractive lure and oh, the, the worm didn't get him. Well, maybe the bright, shiny thing will get him or maybe something else will get him to bite. And you're like the fish trying to bite or biting on every little lure that comes along. And if you want to become, there was a great analogy, if you want to become a big fish, you can't go chase all those little apps and all those attractive things. You've got to work on the operating system first. Yeah, and the, there's many pieces to the operating system, so you have to have the understanding that it takes time to develop that. And so there's not just one thing that, hey, if I just did this, and I'm going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Right? Not at all. The And people will say also, so if it's not one thing, what, what does it take? I've heard someone say this a long time ago, and I boiled it down. I thought it was pretty good. It was pretty encompassing. I think it takes three things to succeed at whatever you're going to do. And I'll speak specifically to the stock market, but the same thing applies whether you're doing this in real estate, you know, starting a small business, what have you. You got to have a strong work ethic. Um, you cannot be afraid of putting out effort. And it's not something you say, all right, I'm going to spend 20 minutes today and expect to be, you know, the, the king of my run or the king, the empire builder by spending 20 minutes at it. You've got to be willing to work. And early on, the work is not going to yield you any financial results. you got to be totally fine with that. You have to also, I believe, have a don't quit attitude that says, you know, you know going in that you're going to get knocked down. You're going to get knocked, whatever analogy or metaphor you want to use. You're going to get knocked off the horse. You're going to get your teeth kicked in. You're going to hit levels of frustration and annoyance. And you have to have the approach of one of two things will happen. If you keep working at this, eventually you'll either succeed or you die first. And dying is okay. Just says you didn't have a long enough runway. But if you keep working at it, you'll get there. And so then it's just a question of this is just what you do. I tell people you sit in the boat, you sit down, you shut up, and you row. And you grab the oars and you pull. And you don't quit. Yeah, I mentioned to you before, Chris, on that uh, one of the quotes I like is, is, you know, that it has to do with the don't quit attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, 
hey, I will find a way or I will create a way. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to make an excuse. Yes. Right. So that's that's the don't quit attitude. You always have in your mind, whatever you're trying to do, you will find a way to get it done or you will create a way to get it done. Right. But you got to go find a way. Someone has a way. If, if, if you're the first, then go create it. Yes. And I guess there's two thoughts of that. One is, and I don't ever want this to sound like, all right, we were able to do it. So we, it's like we're on the top of the mountain, you know, bestowing wisdom and whatever the people down below. It's not meant to sound that way at all. So if it comes across that way, please don't think of it that way. In watching and looking back on what it took for myself to get there, and listening to what Chris described as he went through that, it's really easy now to see people that don't have or that are not in possession of that don't quit attitude, right? When it gets a little frustrating, they quit, right? Or, and I say quit doesn't mean they throw in the towel, but they stop, right? They step away from it for a few weeks, even a few months. And that's a quitter mentality. You can't do that. I, I'll give, you, know, you need a day to go cry about it. That's fine. You need two days. I'm okay with that. You need much longer than that. You got to do a gut check, right? Because that says you don't want it bad enough. And you don't view the frustration as a setback. You view it as something that you learned. And then, here's, an ob- here's an observation of myself uh, back, in, back in school, when I was in school. I remember... Every time I had to solve a problem or even take an exam, it was very tough for me to move past that question or that problem if I couldn't answer it. And that, that was a drawback in taking exams because, you know, you're timed. And I would always struggle to try to finish it because it was tough for me to leave a problem unfinished. So if you had 20 questions on the test and you're at number eight, if you're struggling with number eight, you couldn't move up to a number nine until number yeah, eight it was, was mentally, done. Yeah, it was mentally tough for me. I guess, you know, I, nobody ever taught me to test taking skills, right? But for it was just something in me that said, I, I didn't want to move on and I, I got to get this. Interesting. There's a, uh, along those lines, it's, it reminds me of, uh, what's her name? Carol, Carol Dweck writes this book about mindset and she talks about a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And the idea on, I'm trying to think of how you describe this real quickly. If you give young or give children uh, a puzzle, some kind of a challenging problem, some of them, and have it be you know, relatively difficult for them to solve. Some of the ones when they can't solve it, they feel frustrated and almost feel as a failure, right? And others will look at it and say, awesome, I learned what doesn't work. Can you give me another one? And so they view that, if you want to call it failure on, on solving that first puzzle, they view that actually as a success and that now they know what doesn't work. And they turned what other people would view as a negative into a positive. Yeah, that's a positive spin to it, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. That's cool. You'll also hear that approach in, like if somebody is doing sales and you know, just you know, we all get annoyed by the telephone solicitors. Um, or people, uh, whatever kind of sales you can think of, but from a sa- or think of a car salesman, somebody walks onto the lot. They know from experience, if you have a hundred people walking into a car lot to come in and look at cars, they know that some percentage of them will end up being a customer and end up buying something. And I don't know, I'm not in car sales. I don't know. Let's just say for numbers, let's say it's, you know, one out of 10 
And so with 10 people coming to the car lot, one of them is going to buy. Or with 100 people coming to the car lot, 10 of them are going to buy. And so what you want to do, it sounds weird, but you want to lose quick. And so, you know, you, in a polite way and in an appropriate way, you try and close the person. You're here to buy a car. Do you want to buy a car? No. Awesome. And you don't view that as a rejection. You just know that if you're going to get one out of 10, you, only have, you now have got one down. You've got to hear eight more no's before you know you're going to sell a car. And so the objective, the thinking is not to be disappointed that somebody told you no. Just know that you only now have to hear, eight, now you, your goal is to hear it seven or eight more times. So now you get to, you get the win. And it's a reversed, reverse psychology thinking on that. It's not the quitter attitude that said, ah, oh, somebody said, no, I'm never going to sell a car or sell a whatever. It's more so, you know what your batting average is, for lack of a better word, you know, one in 10 will buy a car. And your objective is to hear no nine times as quickly as you can so that you can get that 10th one to buy a car. And then you get, you get annoyed when number five says yes. You're like, crap, I got to start all over again because I wanted to get to 10. That reminds me of the book, How to Close Every Sale. Mm-hmm. Did you recommend that to me? or uh, It wasn't that one. There was one that I had. It was, um, I think it was Getting to Know or I can't Getting to Yes. Title. Getting to Yes. Maybe that's what it was. You should you should come up with a book saying Getting to, getting to Know. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's about, right? Exactly. How that's many really no's can you get to? Exactly. But the point on that is to have a don't quit attitude. And so back to what we we're saying. So what does it take to do this, right? You got to have a strong work ethic. Get have a don't quit attitude, and then you have to have an ability to follow instructions. You know, and if you guys want an easy, easy way to remember that, and you know, because we come from IBM, it's a lot of acronyms. You got to be very, very sad. There you go. Right. Strong work ethic, ability to follow instructions, and don't quit. SAD. And so that ability to follow instructions, unless you're coming up with something that is brand new, that nobody has ever done before. And that really is only going to be a product or service, right? But the mentality and the mindset and the process you go through to bring that product to market is the same thing that's been done before. And so all you want to do is, you know, find whether it's a book, a class, a somebody, somebody that has done what you're trying to do and be sure that you want, be sure that they've done what you want to do. Listen to how they describe it and find out, one, if they can describe it, and two, if you're able to understand it. Can they describe it in a way that makes sense to you and is logical and just kind of resonates with you? And it doesn't mean it gets you pumped up and, you know, ready to, fired up and ready to go. It's just that this makes sense. It may go a little bit against your grain because it's something different. But logically, you go, all right, I follow the logic, I can get it. And then don't tweak the recipe. You know, if they're giving you a recipe to make chocolate chip cookies, just, you know, but I don't even know what goes in chocolate, you know, butter, flour, sugar, and chocolate, or whatever goes in there. Don't go in and add nuts. Perfect their cookie recipe first. You say, but yeah, but I think it should have nuts in the cookie. That's wrong. If you want to eat their cookie, you got to follow their recipe. And so don't tweak the recipe. Follow the map, lay it out as exactly it's been given to you, and you'll end up with the results that they had. Once you've That's achieved good. that, 
then if you want to change, if you want to put in a modification, that's up to you, but only after you've achieved the level of success that that person had. That, that's a good example since we're talking about cooking. The one thing you can ask, you know, you go ask a cook, hey, what's that one thing I got to do to, you know, be a good cook or you know, make a good dish? What's that one recipe? Or that's what that, what's that one ingredient? It's like that's what you're asking. Mm-hmm. There isn't one ingredient, right? Different ingredients. You got to learn how to use all the ingredients to be a good cook. And if you're following somebody else's recipe, the one thing you do is you follow somebody else's recipe. If you're coming up with your own, different story. But if you're trying to mimic somebody else's cooking recipe, you follow exactly what they do, how to do it, measure it out exactly, set the temperatures right, baking, cooking, whatever you're doing, do it that way. And then you you too would see the result. So the one thing needed to succeed, bottom line, there isn't. If there is one thing, it's having the proper mindset. And you could divide, if there's three things, strong work ethic, SAD, strong work ethic, ability to follow instructions, and don't quit. I think if you incorporate that SAD acronym or apply it to what you're doing, then you, you will you will succeed. Right, and, and everything, and and if you ever catch yourself thinking about, hey, what's is is there an easy way to do this? Is there a secret, or is there some type of crystal ball or something that I'm looking for? If you ever find your mind thinking that way, you know, stop, because you're going down the, hey, I don't want to work. What's 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 easy? And the moment that you find out that there's no not one thing, you quit. We all have voices in our head. Right? There's nothing wrong with it. It's not mental illness. But we all have these voices that pop up in our head every now and then. In fact, pretty regularly. Some of them are encouraging. Some of them are discouraging. And you have to learn to recognize which one is talking to you and get it to quiet down. You just acknowledge it. Say, hey, thanks for talking. You're an idiot. Sit down. Shut up. But thanks for your input. And go listen to the other one. Or if you find you're listening to the voice and it's steering you in a direction you don't want to go, You either get the voice to quiet or rather than listening to the voice, you start being the voice. It's going to turn into a psychology podcast here pretty quick if we're not careful. And I am not qualified. (laughs) You're making me think about that show a long time ago called Herman's Head. Well, I never even saw that. Oh, yeah. It was just that had a bunch of characters. Each character is like his personality. And so there's all these people fighting in his head. Oh, interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So... If this is the first time you heard about it, uh, you know, look it up. Interesting. So along those lines, um, so we're recording this on, not that it matters if you're listening to it later, but we're recording this on a Saturday and the day we're, we're recording early in the morning on a Saturday, the prior day in the stock market, we had a very large sell-off in the NASDAQ and the stock market dropped big, at least in one particular sector or one, um, index and It was interesting. A number of phone calls and emails came in on Friday afternoon. So market closes one o'clock in LA and started noticing notes coming in at about noon up until the, you know, middle, middle, late evening. People asking about, so wait a minute, the market dropped really big. Um, Are you hurt? Are you helped? Explain how this works. And a chunk of those came from people with a strong real estate background. 
and the questions, you know, rather than going through each one of them individually, <clears throat> you can lump them in a, in a broad, cate- bro- broadly, categorically lump them. And it really came up with a few questions. One, they were asking, is the stock market real? You know, what do you do when you have this, you know, st- the NASDAQ was down 2% or whatever the percentage was that it was down, somewhere in that range. What do you do with that? And my gosh, that, that's a huge thing. And does this stuff really work? And the other question they were asking was, is the work effort really that much different between the stock market and the real estate market? And it's always amusing to me that those questions come in and there's a lot of curiosity, if you will, when we get volatility in the market. And oddly enough, when you understand the stock market, the volatility is the greatest thing out there. And yet the people that have no background in it, that's what scares them. Yeah, they get scared. Yeah. And you think, oh, man, you have no idea. This is what makes this thing awesome. So the first question is to ask, is the stock market real? Now, not, not is it real, are the returns, lit, I don't even know what, how to describe a better way, to, how a better way to say that than is it real? Of course it's real. It's, it's, it's down in lower Manhattan. Um, but the returns that you can get off this with not just doing a buy and hold, but, and not actively trading where you're day trading regularly, you know, have it as a job, you're locked at your screens. But the returns you can see off this, they're real, totally real. Um, And does it work? It absolutely does. Can you make money at this when it goes up? Sure. Can you make money at it when it goes down? Absolutely. And you make. Let's hold that thought on the making money going down. Please. Uh, Because you're saying, hey, it's a big volatile day and people in real estate are nervous or they're they're more emotional about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they can relate it to real estate. When real estate is down, people are emotional. When it's up, I guess they're emotional too, but they're not worried. Correct. And they're, they're excited about opportunities. So they tend to see opportunities to the upside versus to the downside. Mm-hmm. It's that. And if you think about it too, uh, you know, we had the, the financial debacle. Gosh, it's been almost 10 years now. Um. And when you had that, you had the stock market dropping, you had the housing market dropping. And as the housing market was bottoming across many spots across the country, you had a lot of people that were afraid to go in and buy. And yet, oddly enough, when the housing market was at its peak, you know, year two, three before that, everybody and their brother was willing to go out and buy. You know, I I can specifically remember walking walking into a grocery store. My kid was about two. And as the lady was scanning my groceries to do the checkout thing, she said, do you own a house? And it was such an off the walk. I said, what? She said, do you own a house? And I looked at her kind of side and I said, why do you ask? And she said, well, if you don't, I have two here for sale that I'm flipping. And this was the cashier at the, at the you know, major supermarket near where I lived. And I smiled. I said, really? She said, oh, yeah. And she pointed at the box point. It's probably 18, 20 year old kid. She said, yeah, he's flipped two condos in the last X number of months and has made some pretty good money. And I've got two for sale if you're interested. Now, I'm sure that she was probably the smartest uh, checkout person ever on the history of the earth. And so, you know, I'll give her credit for being able to be 
ambitious and flipping homes. And I'm sure that was the smartest box boy that ever walked the face of the earth. But if there were more than one of them doing that, which there probably were, when you get down to that level where even the box boys are making money on flipping homes or flipping stock or whatever it is that they're doing, you know you're near a top. And it wasn't long thereafter where you started to see the cracks show up. And so, but the point on that is as the market was rising, everybody and their brother was jumping in. Nobody had fear. And then when the prices went down, when they cratered, people were afraid to buy. And you'll see that human nature show up. I mean, we hadn't seen that in the real estate market in quite some time. You see that in the stock market regularly. Doesn't happen every day, but you see it regularly where when something is rising up, 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 up. And then it comes, people are like, oh, let's keep buying. It's rising, rising, rising. Well, then it falls. Now they're afraid to jump in. And I'm not, please do not take that as go buy tomorrow when the stock market opens because we had a big down day this past day. I'm not saying that. But you have to be aware of that. Yeah, typically one day of down does not create a buying opportunity. Now, could we turn up from here? Sure. Could we turn down from here? We could. Not predicting that aspect of it. But just understand in that downdraft. So people ask if this is real. So on a day like Friday, uh, day trading is not really my favorite thing to do, but there are times when it's so obvious, like why wouldn't you do it, right? There's just opportunities that jump out. It's like, I can jump in for a little bit. I'm sitting here at the screen anyway, but I'm not actively regularly seeking these things out, just staring at it with my finger on the keyboard. Easily, uh, on a, the with the NASDAQ turning down like it did, not difficult to do a return that was in the high double digits within hour, two hours, something like that. And now that's with knowledge, and that's with experience. And that's with the ability to recognize what's going on. And there's always risk with that. You could be wrong. You've got to be willing to close the trade if you're incorrect. But and There's a lot of money management that goes along with that too, not just uh, you know, throw all your dollars in. You do not bet the farm. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of moving. Say it's just, isn't it just one thing? There are many moving parts to it. And that's probably what scares people away from the stock market is they realize the number of moving parts. And you learn over time which ones to pay attention to and which ones to ignore. So you get a lot of noise thrown at you. You have to learn to put on the filters on your ear and not, not get wrapped up in that. But to make a double-digit return on a day like Friday, not a problem all over the place. And you do that just in the stock market. We had many stocks that were dropping 5 to 10% on the day. That's And that's just the stock. If you trade the option around it, there's huge opportunity there. And so what's always, what has been the most appealing thing to me about the stock market, and I, I always use stock versus real estate because those are the two common things that people look at. If you're doing a, and I'll use the buy and hold perspective from a real estate person, um, and just, you know, buying a place and, and generating rental income off of that. In the area where we live, <clears throat> Southern California, uh, homes are pricey. And if you go in a very, um, a very desirable area, you're going to see 1% to 3%, maybe 4% if you're lucky, return on your money. And that assumes you have no debt service. So, you know, you own the place outright and with, without any debt. You're probably going to see anywhere from maybe 2 in a very, you know, a very strong beach community to maybe 4 to 5 to 6 
in a middle-income neighborhood. If you want to move into a lower socioeconomic area where you're going to have a little more challenges, um, you might get into the double digits, might. But that's going to be a stretch, and that assumes that you didn't run into any issues with the tenant that year and no issues with maintenance. But generally, you're going to see in the range of you know plus or minus a handful of percent return. And that takes all year, and that assumes everything goes well. And in the stock market, you did that in one day. In fact, you did it in a couple hours. Again, it doesn't happen every day, but the opportunities are there. And now you just sit and you wait for the next one. Yeah, if you want to apply some numbers to real estate, it's, you know, think about a half million dollar home collecting about $2,500 a month in rent. Which would be pretty common in, in yeah. around Southern California. Mm-hmm. So you roughly see about something revenue-wise is about 5 6% of the value of that home. So it's, it'd be, if you do the math on that, so if the rent is $2,500, that says the, the owner is going to generate $30,000 in rental income annually yeah, on a half a million dollar X. So it's 6% there, but now they've got fees. You know, they got to pay property tax. Maintenance. There's going to be some insurance. Let's assume, you know, say they get lucky and have zero maintenance and say they get lucky and have no tenant issues. I, I don't think you, <clears throat> we, we got to calculate yard maintenance. Okay, no problem. So, because I think a lot of people end up paying somewhere one hundred and fifty to two fifty a month on yard maintenance. You got that. You got insurance. You got property tax. You got a whole number of expenses that line up with that. And so that just that gets pulled against, or that comes it comes off the top. That comes off your thirty thousand dollars of revenue. And Water, so, trash, sewage. Yep. Right? If you add all that stuff up, it's going to eat away from that six percent, and that's. And that's where we say somewhere in the three to five percent, probably not a Correct. not an unreasonable stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking through this morning. <clears throat> There's a uh, apparently a hot stock on Wall Street called Nvidia, and don't go out and look at this. Don't buy it. Just using it as an example because there was an article in CNBC yesterday. Um, Chris, you were looking at it. It got as high as one sixty, if I remember right. Yeah, just above 160, actually 168, I believe. Somewhere in, so in the high 160s, and how low did it go? Do you remember? Uh, 140-ish, 142 maybe. So just for numbers, let's say it was 165 to 140. And if, if we're looking at this and we're off, I'm not trying to be precise, trying to give you an estimate. So it had a $25 range um, from 165 down to about 140-ish. So ballpark 25 bucks. 25 on 160 is about 15%. So that thing mm-hmm. had a 15% intraday price swing. And if you, if now if you're the poor guy that bought that thing at 160 in the morning, cause news came out, you go, oh, this is awesome. Let's keep going up. You are not feeling good when you wake up this morning and see that your $160 asset today is only worth a hundred or $165 asset is now worth 140. You're feeling pretty stupid. Now to equate that, and, and people say in real estate, oh my God, that's horrible. That's awful. That's why I want to buy. That's why I want to stick with real estate. I don't have the volatility. Look at it the other way. You're never going to be able to buy at the bottom. You're never going to sell at the top. If you do, you're just lucky. It's not not what you're trying to aspire to. But you had twenty. You had fifteen percentage points of opportunity. That would be the equivalent of that half a million dollar home by the end of the day being worth four hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. It's a 15% drop. And you say that to a real estate person and their eyes pop. Scares them. Yeah. 
and you say that to a stock market person and they get a huge smile because they understand that's opportunity. Right? Yeah, but if you if you tell them it's uh it's five hundred thousand now it's five hundred and seventy five thousand, yeah, right? it's fifteen percent to the upside, upside. Then they see opportunities. Correct. Right for the real estate folks, it's um you know when you see the up move you you get more excited, down mm-hmm. move you get scared because you haven't experienced ways to make money going down. Correct. And there are ways to make money when the stock market goes down. How do you do that, Chris? You cross your fingers. You go to church on Sunday and you say, please, dear God, give me a bone. Please throw me something. Well, you know what? Just to share with our listeners who's not exposed to the stock market uh, from a uh, just making money off of the stock going down, what you can do is you, there's a lot of stocks you can short. There's something you call it shorting. So shorting is basically you're borrowing shares and you're, you're selling that first. Then you buy it back at some point right? to, to give back the shares you borrow. So an easy way to explain that for people, um, I use this a lot in an analogy. Imagine that you're walking into your local um, sports bar in your neighborhood near your, you know, your nearest sports bar. And you've been in there enough and you know the owner and the manager. <clears throat> and in your discussion with them one day, they tell you that they're going to shut down for about a month and they're going to go through and rehab the place. And as you're talking, they say, and you say, you know, you've got that big screen, you know, that 50 inch Samsung flat screen up on the wall. You're not going to need it for a month. Can I borrow it? And they look at you and say, sure. All right, just be sure and bring it back within a month or whatever time frame you agree to bring it back. And you, you get that, you get that TV off the wall. And the first thing you do when you get it to your car is you go on Craigslist and you post an ad because you've got a 50 inch flat screen Samsung to sell. And you sell it. And let's say somebody gives you $400. You do a, uh, an out-of-the-trunk parking lot transaction. So now you have $400 in cash. And you know that you owe a, flat, a 50-inch flat screen, whatever I said, Samsung, to this bar. And you have to return it to them on or about a certain date. What do you do? You scramble around. Now you go on the other side on Craigslist. And you say, man, is there a 50-inch flat screen Samsung that I could buy for something less than 400 bucks?" And the bar's not, as long as you give them, you know, an equivalent TV, they're going to be totally fine. They're not going to check the serial numbers on you. And so now you scramble around, you find someone that's willing to sell one for $250. So you take your 400 cash, you spend 250, you get another 50 inch flat screen. You're left with $150. You bring back the TV, you hang it back up on the, the wall of the bar. Everybody's happy. And so we, we did a, in the stock market with any market, you buy low and sell high. And so in this case, we bought for 150 or bought for 250 and we sold for $400. It's just that we did it in a reverse order. We borrowed something that we didn't own, borrowed that TV, sold it out in the open market, generated some cash, and then we used that cash to go find an equivalent asset, if you will, for a lower price. We make the purchase, we keep the difference. If we couldn't have found that TV by the time it's due back, we're going to have to drive down to the local Best Buy or Costco or wherever we go, and we might actually have to pay more for that 50-inch TV. And if we have to pay more, then we take the loss. So we got to go down to Costco or wherever you're going to buy this thing. Let's say it costs 700 bucks. You now have a loss of $300, and that's the risk you take. And that same concept applies with stock. 
So you can contact your local stockbroker, your, your favorite broker, whoever you're using, and they call it shorting. Say I'd like to short some shares of ABC stock. And there's some paperwork you got to fill out. But once all that stuff is set up, you go out to the open market, you sell, let's say it's 100 shares of ABC stock, and let's say it's $100 a share. So you sell 100 shares on $100 each, that generates $10,000 in sales proceeds. That 10 grand sits in your account at the broker, but the broker knows that you owe him 100 shares of ABC stock. And you hope and pray and hope and pray and you know do anything you can in your power to somehow convince the stock market to drop the price of ABC stock to something less than $100. Let's say it drops to $95 over the next X number of days, weeks. You've got $10,000 in cash. You have to buy 100 shares. The price is 95 So 100 shares at 95 each, that's $9,500. So you're going to use 9500 of your $10,000 to replace those shares. So you do the buy low. The transaction is closed. You're done. You're left with $500. And so in doing that transaction, you made $500. You basically made it out of thin air. And people ask the question, so when they get a little anal in the wrong way, like it doesn't matter. But they'll say, well, what? how do you calculate the ROI on that? You say, well, your return was 500 and your invested amount, I guess your buy price was 9500 But if you think about it, you didn't come up with that $9,500 to start. So it's kind of an odd way to calculate ROI. But if you were to calculate it that way, it was 50, you made 5%, you made $500 on 9500 ballpark 5%. But don't get caught up in the ROI. It doesn't matter what your returns are. The thing is that you do it correctly and the money shows up. Whatever kind of return you make is not relevant. It's the same thing as don't worry about what the scale says. If you're going to do what you need to do at the gym, you will get to your goal. Correct. Don't worry about stepping on the scale. Yes. Yep. Did I explain the the shorting pretty well? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, you can just directly you know, talk about the stock itself. It's you know, the stock versus the TV, the, the stock is the same. These shares, there's no difference. There's no serial number in the shares. You can't really consume the shares. Right? So it's not like oh, it's depreciating value or anything. It's just they're, they're, these shares, what do you call them, fungible, Chris? Fungible, F-U-N-G-I-B-L-E. Okay, so same thing as a dollar bill. I mean, in fact, these shares are actually more mint than the dollar bill because you know, I can give you my dollar bill. It has stain on it or whatever, right? But mm -hmm. the value of it's the same. So... so so there's always someone holding, right, these shares, and they're not selling it. So if your brokers has some, then you can borrow them for shorting. But sometimes your broker may not have them. So you got you got to verify and check. Yeah, right? but I found I found you know a lot of cases, some especially uh, shares or stocks that uh, uh, are heavily traded, right? They will have shares for shorting, or your brokers will have shares for shorting them. Now, don't go out there and just short just because you understand what shorting is because that's an app, right? Yes. You, you got to have a plan. You got to have a, an operating system there's, to make sense of all this stuff. There's many, many okay. moving parts. Um, now, let's talk about the other way of, uh, you know, having the, when the market goes down and you can also make money. Chris, right? let, let, before you do that, let me go back on that fungible thing to, to make that clear to people. Sure. If you look in your wallet and you pull out uh, you know, two $5 bills and you line them up side by side, if you look at them, they are exactly the same, except that 
they have a serial number on each one. So one $5 bill will have a serial number, one, two, three, four, five, whatever it is. The other one will have one that says two, four, six, eight, ten. But aside from that serial number difference, those $5 bills are interchangeable. So if I hand you a $5 bill and you hand me a $5 bill, neither one of us made or lost money. And that's called a fungible. So money is fungible. Shares of stock are also fungible. If you have one share of IBM and I have one share of IBM and we get a, a printed stock certificate, it will have actually a registration number on there. It's basically a serial number. It's going to say 12345 on yours, and it's going to say 246810 on mine. You and I can hand each other those shares of stock, and neither one of us made or lost money. So the shares of stock are fungible. When you, using the TV example, it, it's re, you're going to make the argument, you know, the TV might have wear and tear on it or scratches or whatever. It, don't get caught up in that. It's the concept. But the idea then is when you sign up with a stockbroker, and you set up an account there, you're going to sign up, end up reading through. Most people don't read them, so I'd strongly suggest you go read these. Read all the fine print. And somewhere in that fine print, on one of the forms, they're going to talk about if you're going to hold the assets, the basically the shares or whatever it is that you're buying, in street name. And in concept, what that says is the, the broker's name, you're, they're held, I think I ought to say this correctly, and if I say it incorrectly, lawyers don't call me. You get the concept. Remember, we're unemployed. We don't understand this stuff. Talk to somebody that has a job. They can explain it to you correctly. When you, when you own the share of stock and you drop it in at you know ABC Brokerage Company, it gets held in the brokerage company's name for the benefit of you. And so it's really held in your account. But what that really is saying is the broker has the ability to, buy, to sell your shares in the open market if they want to. And if you ever want them back, they'll immediately go back and buy some and give them to you. But in essence, they have the ability to trade your shares should they so desire. You say, does that really go on? Well, let me ask you this. For the next, you know, next time you're able to watch CNBC, turn it on and they'll bring up somebody at some point, usually earlier in the morning, and it'll be, you know, Bob or Sue from ABC, you know, brokerage, uh, hedge fund, mutual fund, whatever it is. And they'll be sitting in a conference room that's overlooking a big um, wide open cubicle area. And there'll be hundreds of people down in that cubicle area. And each one of them will have probably about three monitors in front of them. And I always get a kick out of, you know, you listen to the financial industry folks will say, you know, you put the money in, you buy and hold, excuse me, and you hold forever. And we'll hold the shares for you. But they're not holding them forever. They're moving them around on their behalf. And you give them the right to do it. There's nothing wrong about it, nothing illegal about it. But you have to understand they're moving stuff around. And it's, it could be your shares that they're moving. Or if you're in a mutual fund, it's your money that they're moving. And they're trying to perform on that. And so you have to understand that. So this stuff goes on regularly. The fact that they're able to buy and or sell those shares allows you then to also go out and short shares. So you can, you know, contact the broker and say, I'd like, I don't own any shares of IBM or ABC company, but I'd like to go out and sell some short. If you relate market. that to the, uh, the you know, just the bank, mm-hmm. it's no different than you depositing money in the bank. Those are your shares and they go and they move your money around. They lend your money out. That's a great point. Right. So yeah, when you... it's the same concept. 
when you drop your money into your, you know, you get your paycheck this week and it goes into your checking account. You don't walk in and your checking account balance is $9,000. They don't have a little cubby hole in the bank that says, you know, Chris Hansen, they've got $9,000 poked in there. Or Chris Lamb's got, you know, $10,000 in his. You don't have that. You just have a claim on a portion of the bank's assets. And they're going to move the money around as they see fit. They're going to loan some. They're going to do whatever else they do with it. That's a great point. It's the exact same concept. So, so we beat to death how to short or the concept of short. And again, do not go out tomorrow and short stock. You don't know what you're doing. If I can give one, I can't give financial advice. My one piece of advice that I can't give, but I am going to give, don't do it. You have to know what you're doing because you can lose your butt huge quickly. You can lose everything theoretically because if if you're shorting, you're selling first. You got to buy it back at some point. And if this stock just skyrockets like Nvidia, yep. right, if it just skyrockets, you know, and, and it gets to theoretically, it, it 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 has no limit. It can keep going. So you got to buy it back at whatever price it is. When you said, "Hey, I don't have any more cash left. I got to buy it." <laughs> yep. You will go bankrupt. You have to know what you're doing with this. Now, probably a a less less risky way to do uh, capture a move going down is through the use of options. And uh, we talked about calls in the last one, right? So another type of contracts is... Uh, Chris, let's re- before you do that, let's review calls real quick. So call is the right to buy. Correct, the and right we- to buy. So again, let's, let's talk about options and stocks, right? Options separate them from stocks. Options are contracts. So, you know, am I trading the stock or am I trading the contracts? Here, we'll give you an example of trading the contracts to capture the move. So it's a derivative of the stock. Yeah, we, we don't even want to use that term. We go, what the heck's a derivative? That's fine. I just said it. So if you ever <laughs> hear that word, that's what they're referring yeah. to. It's derived from something else. Yeah, like it's the uh, there's the underlying asset. It's tied to an underlying asset. That's what a derivative is. It's not an, it's not really an asset that uh, you know that you actually own. It's it's just contracts or it's it's a um, it's the right. You hear that in a lot of financial engineering, right? Yes. So they create all these type of tradable securities. Right, that's based on an asset. So, think about back in the financial debacle we saw in 2008, with the housing uh, uh, market right going down. There were all these mortgages that were wrapped up, and and they were bundled up into a type of offering. So CDL. these are derivatives. Right, these are also derivatives. And what is the underlying asset? The underlying asset are, you know, that the homes, the actual homes that mm-hmm. they're based on. Right. And 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 the the mortgage payment it's based on yes, but they created this security that people can trade. So that's also a derivative. So when you hear derivatives, doesn't mean it's just options. Correct. It's a bunch it's of different derived yeah. from something else. Derived from something else. So go back to puts. So uh, puts, uh, let me interrupt right. you one sec. If you are interested in this, or you know, curious about what all that stuff means. There was a film a few years ago that uh, explains it, you know, and it's a Hollywood spin on it, but it's a really great explanation of the basic concept. Uh, it was called The Big Short. Got, uh, I want to say it won an Academy Award, I can't remember, but a humorous look, if you will, at what goes on, and they, uh, in there, they explain what a lot of these words are. So if you've not seen the film and have a curiosity on this, it's, it's worth looking at on Netflix, wherever you can find it. The Big Short. All right, back to puts. Back to puts. So again, puts are contracts, and uh, we talked about calls giving you the right, right, the contract giving you the right to buy something. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to have a right to buy something when the stock is going up, 
right? So you're gonna you're gonna capture that opportunity. If I lock in a price to buy something, and that price keeps going up, cool, I get to buy it at this low price. So you you will make money off of of, of having owning calls when a stock is rising. Now, when a stock's coming down, the other option is the put contract. The put contract is the opposite. It it gives you the right to sell. So think about that. We said coupons related to calls in the last yes, uh, like episode. Yes, like pizza coupon. Yep. So, so pizza and coupon, if you guys don't know, go back and listen to it. Um, now puts, I related to insurance, or we related to insurance. And it's the same concept. Hey, I'm locking in a price to sell it at. So if everything is going down, it doesn't matter. It can go to zero. I'm protected at this price. So your your this insurance contract or this uh, put contract will go up in value as the stock goes down. So just as in, hey, you you own a life insurance policy, it's worthless until you die. <laughs> if it goes down, then you're covered. But you know they don't cover your life, but they give you this you know this this death benefit that you signed up for. Uh, so or the, you relate it to a house. If the house gets burnt or the house gets damaged somewhere, you got insurance. Insurance covers the cost of that to repair it, bring you back to a hole. So when you first bought the insurance contract, it isn't worth much. But when there's some damage to your house, the insurance contract goes up. So here in the stock market, we buy the put contract. Gives you the right to sell. And when the stock goes down you make the, the value of the put contract goes up. So that's how you make money. Easy, another easy way to think about this. Imagine, hopefully, if, if you're driving, not hopefully, you're required to have car insurance. It was just a real easy, simple example. Let's say you drive a, a Honda that costs about $20,000 and you go buy insurance on that Honda for the year and it costs you, let's say, $1,000 for the year. And so you, you get the insurance on January 1st, you write the check for $1,000. Now you're covered. And so if you were to wrap your Honda around a pole, they would reimburse you up to the value of the Honda. Just keeping it real simple. So up to $20,000. And three to four months into your time on the insurance, you reach out to the insurance broker and you say, you know, I'm not sure I really want to keep this insurance. Can I cash in what's left? And they're going to do some, you'll hear them, you know, touching the buttons on the computer. They'll come back and say, well, you know, you've used 25% of the insurance. It cost you $1,000. So, there's approximately $750 left of value on this insurance policy because that has remaining, you know, nine months. And they're going to charge you a little bit more than that for paperwork and all that. But just to keep it simple, there's value there of about $750. So your insurance premium on January 1st was worth 1000 bucks, And as each day passes, it becomes worth a little bit less and less and less. And so now in the first quarter, it's worth basically 75% of what it was at the initial. And so now let's say the next, and you decide to keep the insurance. And now the next day you go in and you drive your car into a pole. And so now your $20,000 beautiful car yesterday now has a big V in the front of it where you ran into the pole. And let's say you've got, I don't know, $11,000 worth of damage that you need to have repaired. The car in the damaged state is only worth maybe $9,000, maybe even less right? Because who's going to want to buy, you're not going to spend full value on something that has significant damage. So the asset, your asset now went down in value to 9,000, but the insurance is now worth $11,000 because you're going to call Allstate or State Farm or Geico or whoever you're insured with 
and say, hey, you told me I was in good hands and not we have a problem, you have a problem. I have an issue with my car. Its value dropped because I ran it into a pole. Can you get it fixed? And they'll say, sure. And so that insurance premium in theory is now worth $11,000. They get the car fixed, you're back to whole, everything keeps going. The difference between car insurance and the stock market is that to insure the car, you have to own the car. To put fire insurance on the house, you have to own the house. In the stock market, you don't have to own the stock. So you can buy the insurance policy without owning the underlying asset. So it's almost like when I see some guy driving down the street erratically out of control, I immediately go out and buy car insurance on him because I expect him to run into a pole. And when he runs into a pole, my insurance premium that cost me $1,000 now is worth $11,000 using those numbers. So it's a good point to make, right? In the stock market, you do not have to own the stock to own the options. To own the insurance. Or the only insurance or, mm-hmm. or whatever contract that we're talking about. Correct. And if you wrap your car around a, uh, a pole, your life insurance policy might kick in too. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go with that. We'll go with that. So the life insurance, you know, you spend $1,000, $2,000 a year because you're a high risk person because mm-hmm. you drive like an idiot. So you spend $2,000 a year for life insurance. And in that effort where you wrap the car around the pole, not only did it damage the car, but it put you to just a memory, right? So you're gone. That life insurance premium on you yesterday had, just going with term, had a $2,000 value on it. Now you died. If you said the price, you know, if put life insurance on a million dollars on your head, that life insurance policy is now worth a million dollars. Not to you, but to whoever your beneficiary is, whoever you elected to have the dollars roll to. And so it's the same concept. You know, when the asset is worthless, when you become worthless because you die in the car accident from wrapping around the pole, the insurance goes up to its value. Okay, we'll have to change the topic. That's People are going to either laugh or go, ooh, that's gross. <laughs> but that is what happens. It's for education purposes. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we just, we're, we're not in the business of motivation here. No, no, no. And, <laughs> and it usually works this way too. If you ever, I, I've joked with people over the years when people say, so what do you do? And, you know, when you trade for a living, you learn quickly to basically keep your mouth shut because you get all kinds of negative feedback from people um, or they want to tell you what they do um, on their weekends, you know, in between the, uh, when they're not working at their real job. And you just, you learn to bite your tongue because if they knew what they were doing, they wouldn't have a real job. And so if they're doing that, they probably don't, they're struggling with it and they want to tell you what's right and or what they think is right and see if you can give them some insight. And it's never worth your time. So you just learn to keep your mouth shut. But if somebody is persistent, what I've learned over the years is to tell them I'm in real estate or in uh, insurance sales. I sell insurance. And if you're in, if you are an insurance salesman, you know what happens when you say that you do that. People leave you right away. You'll never have to carry on a conversation. You got to chase them. And so if you never want if you want to have someone not talk to you, you're at a networking event or a cocktail party, and somebody is boring and whatever else you want to get rid of them, tell them that you sell life insurance and watch them. They'll turn and run tail, or run away. It's a pretty good way to do it. <laughs> or you're you're you know you're an MLM business or something. Yeah, same same idea. Yeah, tell them you uh, you got some Amway products you'd like them to you'd like to talk to them about. So back to the stock market with puts. So puts are effectively 
the insurance side of it. And so for the stock. For the stock. And so if you're buying the put, you basically are buying insurance without owning the underlying car, house, whatever it is that you've got. Now, what's your risk when you uh, buy puts? Uh, when I buy car insurance, my risk, and this is the a premium. Bad, yeah, my risk is that I never cash it in, so I lose the premium. So if I, I have my $20,000 Honda and I buy insurance and everything is cool, I don't do anything wrong all year, I lose my $1,000. Right, that's the most I can lose. Now I'm buying that insurance one because legally required, but two because I'm protecting the asset. Imagine that I didn't own the asset, so I didn't own that twenty thousand dollar Honda. The most I can lose by buying the put or the insurance is the premium. In this case, the thousand dollar example that we gave. So that's my risk. So let's go back to the stock example of Nvidia. Okay. So they say the stock is at 160 and you see it it's coming down. Okay. You want to capture the opportunity and you go buy a I have two choices, uh, right? I can buy a put or I can short it. So let's talk about the, the short we both know, right? Okay. We, or we talked about it earlier. So in puts, let's say I buy a put contract that says, "Hey, uh, I can I can right, right to sell." So mm -hmm. I can sell which is the strike price. Say I buy a strike price, call it it just right at 160. So I lock in the price to say I'm I have the right to sell at 160. I'm going to buy this contract that gives me the right to sell at 160. And there's expiration dates and all that stuff. But let's say that you know, to own that right, it costs me, or just call it ten dollars. And so the most I can lose, let's say the stock does not go down, it continues to go up or sideways or whatever. And I just you know I keep on holding that contract, and eventually it's going to become worthless because the Ex stock is much higher than 160 or the expiration like date hits exactly or the expiration date hits and you there's no need to file a claim because there's nothing to claim on correct and you own this insurance policy so essentially your your ten dollars or ten dollars that you put in to buy this you you lost it goes so away that's the most you can lose versus what we talked about earlier in shorting you can lose everything and you can lose more than or everything you have, so, and if you don't, if you don't buy it back, if it keeps running up and you're not going to buy it back, you'll hit at a point where you're out of money. Right? You can't let it. You know, the broke. What the broker does is they're going to go, hey, you need more money in the account to cover it. So if you don't have enough money, then they're just going to liquidate, and and then you see your account might be zero. Easy way to think about it, Chris. We were looking at Nvidia earlier today. What uh, Nvidia was at twenty five? How long ago? Do you remember? Early 2006, yeah. So in, in 06, it was at 25? About 18 months ago. Yeah. Wait, little, six, le, yeah, a little less. Yeah, wait, 06 or 16? I mean, sorry, 16. Okay. See, I'm still a decade ago, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you mentioned earlier how fast it's gone by. You said the financial debacle, it went back in 2007, 2008. Uh, or two thousand, yeah, two thousand eight. Yep. Uh, and it's almost ten years. When you said that, I'm like, oh shoot, it is. Yeah. Because to me, it just seems like you know a few years ago. Uh huh. Right? It does, or or yesterday kind of deal. Yeah. Right? It's still around. Yep. <clears throat> and so in six in twenty sixteen, Nvidia was at twenty five dollars. Imagine that we're having this discussion about Nvidia back in twenty sixteen when the price is at twenty five. And for whatever reason, you get it stuck in your head. You say, you know what? This thing is overvalued. I think it's going to drop. And you take, you and your friend have an opinion of that. One of you goes in and shorts the stock. 
So you, you sell short the stock at 25. The other person buys a put uh, with a strike price of 25. And let's say they spend $3 for that. So Let's say they spend more than that. Let's say they spent $10 because they wanted to buy it 18 months out. Oh, that's fine. All right. So they it give them plenty of time. So it costs them 10 bucks. And so one person puts out 10. The other one person sold first at 25. And NVIDIA ends up taking the world by storm. They're doing something with artificial, artificial intelligence. Stock goes running up, 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 up. And you and your friend, both of you are not willing to admit that you were wrong. And you hang on. You say, ah, it's going to turn. It's, there's no way it can keep going up. My neighbor works there. He's an idiot. There's no way that they're going to do that well. And it keeps going up, 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 up. Finally, you wake up on early June and you go, oh my gosh, the stock's sitting up at $140. It's 18 months after that person that bought the put option with an 18-month expiration. That person lost $10. They lost 100%. So they lost, in theory, only $10, but they lost 100% of their $10. Full, absolute, complete, utter, total loss. Now the person, so but they did limit their loss to $10. On the other hand, the person that sold short the stock at 25, now the stock's sitting up at about 140. And they finally say, oh, that's enough. And they're going to have to go out and buy the stock for 140 that they had sold at 25. So they have a $115 loss per share. If they had done one share, eh, it hurts a little bit. If they had done a thousand shares, that's a hundred and fifteen thousand dollar loss. They bought ten thousand shares, that's a one point one million dollar loss. So it's unlimited risk when you short the stock. You buy a put, you cap your risk. So hopefully that gives a good example of how to capture movements to the downside. And uh, you know, for those that are new to uh, you know the concept of shorting. Hopefully that gives you a clear understanding of what you can do uh, with the stock to capture that move down. And then we talked about puts, right, using contracts uh, in the stock market to also capture the move going down. So there's 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 other ways as well, but those are kind of the two uh, main ways that you see people tend to use right in the in the stock market. And we explain the risk of it as well, so you can understand. Uh, but again, this is education. Don't go out there and because you've learned how this app you know, operates, um, you don't, you don't go out there and start shorting just because you've driven a car in one of these online, you know, driving things, you've driven a car on your phone and doing some kind of race thing. It does not qualify you to go out to Indy and take a real car out on the track. You have to, you got to go slow. You got to practice. So bottom line on this, there are ways to make money in the stock market when it goes up by owning the asset, owning shares of stock, or potentially owning a call option. And that limits your risk. There are ways to make money when the stock goes down. And that's by either shorting the stock or owning a put option, which also limits your risk. But just because you understand those are two ways that you can do it, there are other ways. But knowing those doesn't make you qualified to go do this. You have this. The one cool thing about the stock market is you can practice Right, you can do this on paper and you know develop a set of rules or find a set of rules and prove that they work on paper before you put any real money behind this. 
And then when you're ready to start with real money, I, I can scream this at people. You have to start small. The emotions on this are going to drive you nuts when you first start off because the money comes so fast and it goes so fast. And you have to be prepared for that. So you have to be willing to start very, very, very small and to prove that it works. Yeah, so the volatility that you see in the stock market, that typically creates a lot of emotions. And so when people in real estate try to learn the stock market, they tend to, right, they tend to be very emotional because of that volatility because they don't see that in the real estate market. And so, but, and so they'll complain about the volatility. And mm -hmm. actually somebody with stock market experience, they love it because that's what you're looking for. That's where the opportunities come from the volatility. The other question that came up along these lines, people were the real estate folks again going looking at the notes that, that came in on Friday afternoon into the evening, kind of lump sum describe it. They're trying to understand how the work effort is so different between what goes on in the stock market and what goes on in real estate. One of the questions that came in, somebody said, is it really that much less work? And we kind of we kind of alluded this to to this in the last episode. It's not that it's less work; it's that it's different work, and it's you don't have to rely on anybody else. You look in the mirror, and it's you. It's what goes on in your head and how you react to external stimuli of what's going on in the stock market. But the cool thing is, is once you figure that out. And you'll never be 100% at this as far as a, a win rate. What you're trying to get to is 100% of following the process and following the rules. And when you get to that point, and you know when you do that, if your rules are good, you're going to have winners, you're going to have losers. That's fine. That's expected. But that's what you're trying to get to. It's, it's almost like a golf swing. You want to swing the club the same way each and every time. We've got a couple friends that are, one guy's a tennis pro. And he's, when he hears this, he's going to start smiling. There's a few others that are very, very strong tennis players. And if you were to ask them to pick up a racket, they will pick it up and they will hold it the same way every single time. There's, no, there's one way to hold a tennis racket. And they do that because they've done it thousands of times. And so it's the same process that they do. It's the same thing in the stock market. You do it the exact same way again and again and again and the objective becomes to follow the process yeah i think when people are saying uh they 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 look at it and say is it less work is it really less work because they're focusing on the execution the execution doesn't require a lot of work meaning if i were to put in an order and make a trade or sell it it's push, very quick i push a button that's it yep so it makes it seem like it's less work but the work is in the preparation and the education and the learning. It's in your brain. Yeah, it's in your brain. It's you can't just go in and start, you know, putting in orders, right? So, you know, uh, if you first learn the stock market, that might be something that uh, subconsciously right, is in your head. You think, oh, it's very easy because I, this, the execution is so easy. It's not a sweaty endeavor. I don't, I don't need to deal with other people. That's a bad way of saying it. I'm not relying on other people. So it's a very solo endeavor and there's no sweat, literally no, you push a button on your keyboard. That's it. But and don't forget you, everything you requires work. But until you get to that point, 
there's a ton of mental work that goes on. And so you can't twist the two. The one thing that I was thinking is interesting too, you know, you just had a birthday, right? So you're in your 30s. Um, you're going to be doing this the same way for the next 40 years. You'll be doing the exact same thing in 40 years that you're doing today as far as what you look for when you make a trade and what you look for to exit a trade. Yet if you were in the real estate market, you know, today with your youth, you might be going out and flipping homes, right? Going out and, you know, doing the actual work yourself. Or, and then over time, you're going to graduate and you're going to get somebody else to do the work. And then over time, now you may decide to become more of a landlord. And, right, your efforts change as you get more and more successful in real estate. Your strategies change. But what's fascinating in the stock market, my strategies don't change. The only thing that changes is the number of shares that I buy. But I'm doing the same thing that I did a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, whether I'm doing it with 10 shares or 20 shares or 200 shares or 2,000 shares or even more. And so you get to do it the exact same way. I do know there's a change for you, though. Oh, here we go. The fonts get bigger. (laughs) (laughs) It's the eyes. That's the only thing that changes. That's true. uh, You know, the fonts on your screen gets a little bit bigger. If you don't know what he's talking about, we'll do go to meeting events sometimes or we'll look at stuff together and I'll bring it up on my screen and I make the font huge. He's like, dude, you're like Magoo. What's the issue? Yeah, I see like one sentence on one screen. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Your turn shall come and I will let you know about it. Well, I know. I know the vision, you know, definitely changes right around 40. So yep. you got a couple years close to go. To so the work effort between the two is different. But once you, it's really the learning effort, I think, is different. And it's the mental effort that is different. But one of them isn't more or less work than the other. It's different. But knowing what I know about both, I would never, ever consider switching to the other side. It's too much work and the returns are not anywhere close to what I can do with this. And that's with knowledge and understanding on both. I think that's probably the key point to make is when you understand both, there is no, there is no, there is no second place. And you know, in, in this episode or, or just in the podcast, we talk a lot about real estate and the stock market. And it's not because we hate the stock or the real estate market. It's just that we know there's a lot of people out there pursuing real estate because they don't understand the stock market. And our goal is to share that with you. So that you can see what we're seeing and that you can um, reap educated. the benefits of what we're seeing. Yeah, make, make an educated choice. If you're mm-hmm. choosing one versus the other, you don't know them both, yeah, you're making a mistake. If you yeah, understand them if both. if I just knew real estate, if I just was you know, doing real estate all my life, this is what I want to understand the stock market. And if you know this, I would love to, 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 to uh, you know, ha- have that available to me. So it's not, you know, we're, we're not saying, hey, real estate is negative. If that's what you know, cool, stick with it, right? But now that you've heard about the stock market and what it can provide, what it can do compared to <clears throat> real estate, go explore it and see if that makes sense for you. If it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the operating system. And if it doesn't make sense, terrific. The thinking is still the same. All the stuff we're talking about as to the how to think aspect is still the same regardless real estate, stock, you know, Amazon affiliate, whatever, still the same thing. 
to that end, or kind of along those lines, sounds like we're going to speak out of both sides of our mouth here. We're saying, you know, either one is fine. What we have found, we've got a lot of people that I've trained in the stock market who come from a very extensive, from a baseline of extensive experience in real estate. And what I found with that, and I hate to broad brush it, but it's, it seems it's more common than otherwise. They have a little bit tougher time at this starting off than someone who comes at this without a real estate background. And the reason on that, I believe, is because they're much more emotional when they deal with the stock market because they see the numbers quickly and the numbers freak them out because they're not used to seeing these kinds of ROIs to the upside nor to the downside that come that quickly. And they didn't have that experience in real estate. And so you find, I have found, Chris, I think you've found the same thing, is that somebody that comes at this with extensive experience in real estate, their eyes pop when they see the ROIs that are possible with this. And then they get emotional and wanting to go get it quick. And they have to slow themselves down and learn it first because they've been, they've been successful elsewhere and they want to try and translate that success into this. And everybody's got to start a kindergarten. And you can imagine if uh, you're, you're used to a, a, a 3%, 4%, 5% type of return in a year with your property. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you see, hey, this thing, I, I can just make that in a day. I can make that in a day. I make that in a week. I right? make, sometimes you make it in an hour. <clears throat> sometimes you make more than that in an hour. But basically within that day, right, it's, it's, you can easily make that percentage. Yes. And so when they see that, it's like they're salivating and yeah, that's the greed that shows up. That's the emotion. They're focused on the money instantly yep. and rather yep. than focused on the process. Because remember we said it's, it still requires the work, you, know, you working the process yes. and learning the process. So you don't skip that, right? You, you can't just get to the execution without the process. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you're having a hard time thinking about that, if you're thinking about it from a real estate view, imagine that you walk up to a house that's got a for sale sign on, or you know it has to be for sale, whether it's listed or not. And while you're standing there looking at the house, let's say it's a half million dollar home, suddenly, you know, let's say you've got a, an LED sign up there that has the price shown on there. And suddenly you see it go up to 502000 while you're standing there. And you look around the backyard and you come around to the front. And as you get back to the front, now you see it's at 505000 And it's rising. You're like, oh my gosh. And you look at it, now it's 506000 Now it's 507000 And you watch it going up. And next thing you know, it's 509000 You're going to get a lot of buyers, you know, you're going to putting freak in, out. They're, they're going to they're going to start signing or putting in orders or bidding up the you know, the price of the home um, right, uh, without even looking at the uh, you know the other rooms. And they right. might have just walked in and noticed, hey, it's going up. Hurry up, hurry up. But <laughs> imagine how the real estate person would freak out if that was going on. And now imagine the the person selling the house. They're 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 smiling and laughing at this. And now they're suddenly, probably reluctant too. They're like, because they see prices. Yeah, should I hold on? To, should yeah, I? Yeah, maybe it's going to go to five ten. Maybe it'll go to five eleven. And if you say, you know, I don't believe you, it's not going to change that quick. I'll tell you what. Take a look at when we get a volatile day. That's the equivalent of a stock being fifty dollars, and it goes up by ten cents. That's fifty dollars and ten cents. That's the equivalent of five hundred and one thousand dollars. 
Now it goes up to $50.20. That's $502,000. I'm just scaling it up by adding zeros. And you can see a $50 stock change a dollar within a day, very commonly. That's the equivalent of going $500,000 to $510,000, like that. And that's what goes on in the stock market. That's the incredible opportunity with the volatility. And on a day like we had just on Friday, you saw that kind of decline on some stocks within minutes. And that's cool. That's awesome stuff. And so what happens, though, is that the real estate, if you've got a real estate background, you see that, you think, oh, my God, that price movement's appealing, and you want to grab it quick. And you feel much more emotional because you and your background in real estate shows that prices don't move that fast. Yeah, and you know when I think most real estate investors, um, you know, it, it takes them a, a, a lot of effort, a lot of work to find that opportunity, mm-hmm. right? You know, doing a lot of mailers or phone calls. And having a good network of uh, people around them, and so the opportunities, you know, they come, but they don't come in abundance like, and, and and at a fast rate like the stock market. So it's a much faster turnaround. So they're like, hey, let's just start clicking for profits, right? And that's what stir. It's it's the uh, emotion that's stirring up. It's the greed that's driving that. It's, um, it's that coupled with their because each property is unique. You know, if mm-hmm. I if I buy the you know, Chris, you live in the city that you live in, one two three Main Street. If I want to buy the place next door that looks identical to you, you know, a bunch of tract homes at one two four or one two five Main Street. Even though the when the places were built, they look the same. They're no longer you. They're no longer the same. They're unique, right? You might have a, a better upgrade, or the other guy's got a better yard, or whatever it might be. And because each property is unique, you run into this fear of missing out. Right from a real estate view, like, well, there's this one. If I hesitate, you know, I may not find as good a deal. Or if you got a great deal, you want to go find the next one. You want to find the equivalent. You are not going to find something equivalent to that. But in the stock market, the shares of stock are the same. So if you buy one share and like it, you go buy another one. Go buy another two, go buy another 200. And so there's no fear of missing out on an opportunity because you can buy as much as you want. And so it's yeah, like, you, you can always buy NVIDIA. No yes. one's going to buy it all up and you know, it's not for sale anymore. At some point, if they get acquired or uh, taken uh, private or Unless you're Warren Buffett. Maybe. But for the, you know, the other 99% of us, you know, dealing with our, our individual net worth, we're not going to run into that issue. Um, so I guess that's the conflict that uh, you know, people with real estate background um, have to deal with when they're approaching the stock market and mm-hmm. it's a subconscious thing. So hopefully, you know, we're pointing out some things that might help people in real estate as they're learning the stock market, right? That's, that's what you, you might face and that's what your, your brain goes through. And so if you find yourself struggling, really think about those things and explore what emotions you're going through. That's the voices in the head, in your head that we were speaking about earlier. And so you'll hear that voice in your head, whatever it's saying, you either get to quiet it or you have to become the voice and talk over that. So now you're listening to something different than that voice in your head. If you're coming at this from a real estate background, right? And you're, you find that you're becoming awestruck at the opportunities, right? How do you, aside from, you know, recognizing the voices in your head, how do you solve that? How do you, what do you do? What do you tell well, you, people? You got to recognize that, that emotion first or the, the, the issue. 
and you can't you can't focus on the money you have to focus on the your plan so you got to come up with a plan focus on the process focus on the process and then the execution really is the last piece uh, you you know you can't execute against a plan if you don't have a plan so most people just go and execute like what are you executing right just random things it goes back to so, it's the op versus the operating system so you could almost think about that your plan is the it's your operating system you got to have that in place for you to execute if you're just going based on an app then you're you're just kind of all over the place and the emotions will drive you and you're going to experience a lot of frustration and, and, and losses as well. And then after you execute, now you can adjust your plan accordingly as you make progress. Right? You're learning new things as you're going along the way. That's where you uh, make adjustments. And the things you learn could be things about the stock market. It could be things about your trading plan. And a lot of times it's things about yourself. And you'll start noticing that you are acting fearful at times. You're noticing that you're acting greedy at times. You'll notice that you get into trades before they're trades. You'll notice that you get out of trades too quick. You didn't follow your rules because of either fear or greed. And it, it takes a while to recognize that. And then it takes a while to, uh, first you have to recognize the emotion. Then you have to learn to recognize your reaction to that emotion. And then you control your reaction to the emotion. You never control the emotion. And so that's where the adjustments come in. It's adjustments not only in your plan, but also in you. Yeah, we talked a little bit about ROI or a lot about ROI, right, with real estate and, and what we're, we, we can see in the stock market, uh, you know, on a down day like that. Mm -hmm. But you can't focus on the ROI. The ROI is just to give you an example of what's, you know, what's, what's normal. But, you know, you really can't focus on the ROI because it has nothing to do with um, um, you being successful. What has... What makes you successful is you focus on the work. You focus right? on the it's process. The process. And so you got to focus on the process. You cannot just look at ROIs and, and what your results are. Because if you focus on that, you will neglect the process. And your emotions will eat you up. Because that will drive emotions. If you focus on the process, it will not uh, drive emotions two things that come to mind with that one is uh, with weight loss right if you focus just on the needle on the bathroom scale and when you step on it every day or once a week however often you do you get so wrapped up in that as opposed to focusing on the process which is to move more and to eat eat less donuts if you will eat better quality less whatever it is but move more and a better quality input and if you do that, the results will eventually show up on the scale. Maybe not as fast as you want them to, maybe even faster than you want it to. But you focus on the process. The other thing, Chris, you ran into this just this past week. You had some uh, some yard work done, right? Mm -hmm. There was a leak in the sprinkler system. And the result you saw was that either water coming up or not coming up. But you had to focus on the process. Where was the, the flaw in the system, if you will? And you focus mm -hmm. on that, and the end result will be that the water leak is fixed. It's the same concept. And I so, can't focus on the water being, or I can't focus on the leak, right? Or, you know, that there's a puddle of water there. I can't focus on that puddle of water. No, you focus yeah. on where, um, from whence it came, yep. right? What's the process to get from wherever it's coming from to end up being in the puddle? 
You don't dry the puddle and say, okay, problem solved. You got to figure out what's causing the puddle. And so you'll find with this, this focusing on the process and not on the results, that's not a stock market philosophy. That's not a real estate philosophy. That's something you apply to tons of stuff every day in your everyday life, right? Whether it's dealing with a, um, a sprinkler issue in the backyard, if you're a weightlifter, if you're going to the gym, talked before about the tennis, uh, the tennis pro, right? How you hold the racket, same thing with a golf club, right? It all boils down to you have to measure what you're doing. Val- or, uh, you're focusing on the process and doing it the same way again and again and again rather than measuring the results. You want to get to the point where it's not that you can do it right. It's that you cannot do it wrong. And then the results start piling up. I mean, you pay attention to athletes, whatever sports they're playing, and there's always an athlete that when they're not focusing or when they're focusing on the uh, results, right, they tend to, they tend to, do not so well. I, I mean, imagine you could sense it's you could see a basketball player, you know, shoots very well, but all of a sudden starts struggling. It's like, why is that? Right? It's because they're focusing on the miss shot, right? Or or they're letting some type of emotions get in the way, and then they're you know they may be taking bad shots as well. If they really focus on the process, the process says, hey, I'm only going to take this shot when it is the appropriate shot. And then all else takes, let it, let, you know, the, the result will take care of itself. And, and you, you are going to miss be some emotional shots. if you miss the shot. You are going to miss some. That's okay. You're going to miss. That's expected, right? When yeah. the person comes up to the car lot, you're not going to sell every prospect that walks onto the dealership lot. Yeah, but you're did you handle that customer, right, correctly? Yep. Did, did you follow your process in, right, delivering your service? And if you do that, some number of them are going to buy. Some number of shots are going to fall. Some number of trades are going to work. And then it's a matter of just adjusting the process and the rules such that it gets to an acceptable win rate. And then you just keep executing. You do the same thing again and again and again and again to the point that it gets boring. So bottom line, measure what you're doing mm-hmm. rather than measuring your results. Correct. Correct. It's interesting too, you know, in the stock market, when you're new to this, people, you know, if you start and say, I'm learning the stock market, or I'm doing the stock market, they go, how's it going? The first thing they want to know is how much money have you made? You know, what was your most recent winning trade? What's a trade you just got into? They want to follow you. And that's somebody who has no experience on this. They never ask you, did you follow your rules? But if you talk to somebody that's a trader and that makes a living from this, if you get them, you know, they're not going to do it in a group, but they'll get you in a one-on-one. First thing they'll ask you when you look them in the eye and say, do you follow your rules? You know, how'd you do on your last trade? Not how'd you do. Did you follow the rules on your last trade, both for entry and for exit? Or they'll ask you about your process, right? If, if they don't know what process you're using, they'll ask you about your process versus, hey, what stock should I buy? You got any tips? Right. Yeah. Here's a yeah. tip. Don't buy yeah. and don't sell until you know what you're doing. Best tip I can give you. The second best tip would be don't take tips. Don't take tips. 
go learn. Yep, go learn to do it yourself. Don't fall, you know, if Kramer's a brilliant guy on Mad Money. No, my hat's off to him. But don't do what he says just because he says to do it. Right? You have to learn to do this on your own. And if you go back, and it goes back to, you know, we said the one thing, you got to put in some effort. In the last episode, episode 14, gave you a homework assignment to go measure stock price movement. And you can go back and listen to the to the uh, prior podcast episode. What it talked in there was to go pick 12 stocks and look and see how much each one of those stocks moved in a random month that you assigned it. From experience, just the way human nature, just the way humans are, Chris and I have kind of a side bet, then we'll never be able to prove it. But we both really deep down know that only probably about 5% of the listeners took action and actually did as we suggested. And so if you're one of the five, this whole podcast is directed at you. If you're not one of those five that did that effort, that, that uh, went and did that homework assignment from episode 14, I really sincerely hope that at some point you decide to join the group of 5%. Because those in that group of 5%, their love and their decision. But what's interesting is the choice is up to you. You get to decide if you're going to put out that effort to see if there's something there. No one's holding a gun to your head. Uh, you know, this is not a, you know, do this or you're fired type thing. You just have to decide to do the work and see if your eyes get opened. And it's really a, it's a unique club, if you will of people that will actually take action and go do this. And it, it doesn't have to be around the stock market. It'd be whatever it is that you want to pursue. But it's a very limited number of people that will take action. And so in that membership club, if club, if you will, there is only one requirement for membership, and that's that you're willing to do the work. If you did the work that we were talking about this past Friday, the market had the huge down day. Right, The NASDAQ specifically, don't know what that means, don't worry about it. Basically, the market fell a lot. A lot of stocks had 5 to 10% moves intraday. That's incredible. That's awesome. Easy opportunities to make money in the latter part of the week. And Pro- even with, even with uh, some of the stocks that uh, don't move as well, mm-hmm. right? there's going to be certain days like that Friday where it will move pretty well. Correct. And it doesn't even have give you good opportunities. And it doesn't even have to be a particular day, right? And again, I'm not advocating day trading, but you just see the opportunities on those. So sometimes it'll move like that for a week or two or three, right? And that's why I had you go do the exercise to look at it over the course of a month. You say, well, gosh, it was such a good day on that one day. What if I miss it? I don't care. There's tons of opportunities that show up regularly just about every month. You know, prior to this big down day, the market's been fairly quiet, not a lot going on. But it's not going to always continue to be that way. We're going to have periods of volatility and periods of dead. And periods of volatility and periods of dead. It's happened historically. It's going to happen going in the future. But what's nice, though, is when it does move, those who prepared and who are prepared get handsomely rewarded. And all they're doing is they're executing against their plan. It really is as simple as that from a big high level, you know, top of the clouds view of it. And so, so any call to action for our listeners? Yeah. So something you can think about doing, um, you know, think of some small goal that you want to accomplish and say it's weight loss. It's an easy one. And let's say, you know, you look in the say, man, I'd love to drop 20 pounds. Don't start with that big of a goal. Start with maybe five. 
maybe even three, you know, three to five pounds, something like that. And with it, then find someone who's done what it is that you want to do. And, 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 big and, they can explain or teach you what they've done. Now, with weight loss, it's pretty straightforward, right? You, you watch what you input and you go move more. But if it's something beyond that, right, find someone that can explain what they've done and or teach you what they've done. And if their plan makes sense, if what they've laid out to you makes sense and it seems doable, then just do what they did. Don't tweak it. Don't add, you know, peanuts or, or walnuts or almonds or whatever to that chocolate chip cookie recipe. Kind of ironic, I use a chocolate chip cookie recipe and I said weight loss. But just go with what they told you to do and follow their instructions. And in order to get there, it's going to take three things that we started off with. That's the SAD, right? You got to have a strong work ethic. You got to be able to follow instructions and don't quit. Pick a small goal and try that. It's not hard. It's not difficult. All it requires is that you take action. And we know if you'll take action on just this small step and other things we've talked about in this podcast, we know from personal experience on ourselves as far and as well as teaching others how to do this, if you'll apply what we've taught in this podcast, you'll get to the point that thing, the world looks a lot different. I describe it as Tuesday Waves. And what you want to do, if you've ever had, and during the summer, you'll have the opportunity with vacations, go pick a beach. If you live near a lake, go to a lake. Go down there midweek when nobody is there and pay attention to the sound of the waves crashing on the beach, on the shore, on Tuesday. And you're going to find that they sound a heck of a lot different, so much better than the waves that you hear that everybody else does or gets to enjoy and listen to on the weekends. And that's why we're recording this podcast on a Saturday. On a Saturday. Saturday waves, you know, not, it's not too good. crowded. It's way too crowded at the beach. I don't want to be with all the other crowd. I'll go there on Tuesday when nobody is there. Well, you hear the, you hear the uh, Saturday crowd, not the Saturday waves. That's it. That's exactly it. You hear all the people. And not, the, not why you're going down there. It's listen to the, the relaxing sound of the water hitting. But it's our belief that if you'll implement and take to heart what we've talked about in this podcast... You too will get to the point of all you have to listen, all you get to listen to by choice are Tuesday waves. Tuesday waves are the way to go. Thanks for listening. We'll look forward to speaking to you next time.